Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. In what was deemed a rebuilding year, the New York Yankees are in the ALCS. We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 88 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 24 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Thursday nights on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. As Scott Van Pelt wisely stated during the premiere of Barstool Van Talk on Tuesday night, 1 a.m. Eastern Time, everybody's got some stuff. By stuff, Scott was referencing some of the different things one might enjoy in the comforts of his or her home, and no one is exempt from it, even professional athletes. Even a two-time MVP and two-time champion. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Steph Curry is one of the best and most popular superstars in the National Basketball League. With a resume of leading his Cinderella team to the Elite Eight in college, then keeping that fairy tale going after an injury-riddled start to his professional career. He won the league MVP and helped the Golden State Warriors win the NBA Finals followed by becoming the first player in league history to be named unanimous MVP while leading the team to a league record 73 wins, then won a second NBA championship last season. Curry's family life off the court is equally delightful with high school sweetheart and wife Aisha Curry. 
the duo has had no problem in sharing aspects of their relationship and personal life, both as a couple and as parents, and it's a refreshing thing to see in today's day and age. However, one piece of information can sometimes be too much information, at least for the parties involved. Such was the case late last week, when Aisha was a guest on The Real, a TV show I didn't know existed, but has one of the sister-sister actresses on the panel. Regardless, Aisha was asked to show an unusual picture from her phone and decided to go with something that might have been better kept under lock and key. You know what? Show me um, an unusual picture on your phone. Ooh, unusual. Make it good, girl. You got some. Come on. Uh, Make it good. Make it good. (laughs) Okay, I think this is good. Show it to the camera. What is that? What is it? What? What is that? It's your feet. What are you doing? Okay, what's the story? So, this is going to turn into a whole other thing. But what? my husband really loves my feet. What? I love that. And so, like, the light was hitting him just right that day. And so I was like, let me just snap this photo and send him a picture of my feet. So I always say, like, when he says to send nudes, like, yeah. that's what he's getting, a picture of my bare feet. <laughs> I don't know if he's happy about that, but that's What we were able to learn from that exchange on The Real is that Steph Curry loves his wife and that he loves her feet. And as Seinfeld would say, not that there's anything wrong with that. Just like there was nothing wrong with the discovery several years ago that Rex Ryan was and is really into his wife's feet. You can research that story and accompanying videos in your spare time, but still enjoy one anecdote from it. Though this segment is usually riddled with puns and wordplay, I'll instead leave that to Wes Welker who once managed to work in 11 references to feet during his nine-minute press conference before the Pats faced Rex Ryan's Jets in the AFC division game in 2011. Everybody's putting their best foot forward, and uh, you can't just stick your toe in the water. You got your foot up in the air and want to go out there and just put your best foot forward. Harry's got great feet. We've had some younger players really step up this year, and, you know, he has good feet. He's another guy who has great feet. You know, you're putting your best foot forward out there and, and making it happen. He just does go out there and, and being good little foot soldiers. You definitely have to be on your toes. I'm John Lund for Sports News Red Like Real News. Let's take a quick break to read the Dr. Seuss classic, The Footbook. When we come back, we'll talk to a New York Yankees contributor about how the team has done so far into the postseason and look ahead to what they may be able to do as well. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. 
Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into The Bridge. This week, we want to know, who is your favorite to win the World Series and why? Before getting into this week's guest, it's time to highlight some past guests and conversations that have been had on previous installments of The Bridge. This week, we'll take a look back to around this time last year when we had the pleasure of chatting with Jack Curry, the pregame and postgame analyst on the Yes Network for the New York Yankees. Jack was kind enough to join the show the day after the Yankees had their season ended and provided some excellent insight while recapping the season and looking ahead to 2017. Let's take a listen at what he had to say about what the Yankees could do to improve for this latest season. You can follow Jack on Twitter. He's at Jack Curry. Yes. And find our original discussion of episode 41 of the bridge on my website at londonbridge.com. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of run it back. Same teams. Oh, I'll show you. I'll show you. Just make sure you got a good view. Get some popcorn. Maybe some Juju Bees. A slushy? Snow caps, perhaps. Maybe some snow caps. I don't know. You're going to want to be comfortable today. Watch the show. Watch the show. I don't want to necessarily have you predict how this Yankees team is going to do in 2017. We can just say this year they finished with 84 wins, fourth in the American League East, and did a lot more than people expected them to do at the midway point of the season. What do you think are some of the biggest improvements that they should try to make in the offseason and in getting ready for the next season and what they might be able to do to get similar success to this year and do even better? We've already talked about Chapman, John, so let's, let's put a check near Chapman's name. They need, they need some offense. They need some power. Now, where do you get that from? Trumbo and Encarnacion are free agents. You mentioned Beltran earlier. I, I think Encarnacion is going to get paid by somebody big. I, so that's why I don't know that, that that's a fit for the Yankees. Trumbo, same thing. I can't see Trumbo suddenly signing a one- or two-year deal. I think he's another guy who's going to get paid. And I think the Yankees would almost want a caretaker-type outfielder because they want to see an Aaron Judge, although they don't know if Judge is ready. So then you come back to Beltran, who you mentioned earlier, and I've been thinking about that ever since you said it. And I'm like, hmm, would they, would they go a one-year deal with Beltran? He knows <laughs> the terrain here. He's been successful. So they, they definitely need some offense. Even if Sanchez comes out next year and has a very solid season, and to me that would mean 280, 25 and 80. Let's not expect the kid to hit 40 home runs. Even if Greg Bird comes back from his shoulder injury and he's a 270 hitter, 20 and 75, they need they need more offense. They they need a corner outfielder who can provide some pop. Gardner doesn't really give you pop. Gardner and Ellsbury were disappointments this year, by the way. I mean, I, I know I'm not breaking any news here. Both of those guys at the top of the order, they're supposed to be catalysts for the Yankees, and I thought that they had disappointing seasons. So I think it's add some offense. And as far as their starting rotation goes, I think you know the front guy and the back guy. I think Tanaka is your ace, and I think CC Sebastian is a very solid number five. Now what happens in the middle? Pineda, as puzzling a pitcher as I've ever seen. Then you've got a bunch of kids, Sessa, Green, Mitchell, Severino. They need a couple of those kids to connect. 
because the free agent market for starting pitchers is so barren that I think they would prefer giving their own kids a shot as opposed to going to sign a Rich Hill or somebody like that. And I know there are Yankee fans out there saying, well, go get Chris Sale. And I don't think the Yankees loaded up their farm system to then turn around and, and, and strip it bare, trade four or five guys to, to go get one player. Right. I, I don't think that's their mindset. I could be wrong. I could be proven wrong in a month. They could trade four guys, five guys to get a Chris Sale. I, I just get the impression that they like their own pitchers enough that they're going to see if, if these kids can produce at this level and they're going to hang on to those prospects for a little while because, John, they don't know which ones are going to hit. Right. They've got Glaber Torres and Jorge Mateo, both now who are single-A shortstops. I mean, Torres is ranked higher by a lot of experts, but I don't know that they're going to just give up prospects and to go get one pitcher. I don't know if they think that's the right way to go today, but we'll see. We kind of got the sense that once they started making these moves and going younger and allowing some of their farm system players to have starting roles and to have influence, you almost got the sense that, okay, this is how it's going to be for the next couple seasons. They're going to rebuild. They're going to see what pieces they have and then build around those pieces. But then those guys come out and put together the end of the season that they did and almost get this team into a wild card spot. So then the thinking probably switches to, well, maybe we already have what we need. Let's go and get a couple big name players who these players would work well around and see if we can make a shot next year instead of, quote unquote, taking a year off and really working on this rebuilding process. If you had to pick, do you think they lean more toward the latter part where they go out next season and get a couple big-name players and hope they might be able to contend? Or do you think they'll be content enough to let this play out a little bit for next season, see what they have going with the younger talent, and then start making some moves the next season when I know a lot of bigger names as well are coming off the books and will be free agents for them? I think they let it play out. I I think the Yankees know their own organization obviously and their own players better than anyone else and as excited as they are about the august and and a chunk of september that they had i think they're they're honest about where they stand and again i don't see them just rushing to add older high paid players chapman is one thing and maybe like i said an outfielder or a power type that you could get on not not a many year deal but I think they still look forward that they want to they go with youth. They want Greg Bird and Aaron Judge and Tyler Austin and, and Clint Frazier and Severino. They want these guys to be part of the next wave. And you start adding player X on a four-year deal, well, where's Aaron Judge playing or where's Clint Frazier playing? So it's going to be a very interesting offseason because of that. I think they're going to stick to that philosophy, but – Again, these are my opinions. I've talked to some people in the organization, and I try to synthesize what they say and and go forward. But I, I still think that they didn't have the the trade deadline moves that they had to suddenly reverse course. They're they're rebooting. They're they're pivoting, but they're pivoting quicker maybe than they had expected. I don't think that's going to take them away from the decisions they were making in that in that area. And the last one for you is regarding the manager, Joe Girardi, because I'm sure a couple listeners would be remiss if I didn't bring him up. How do you think he was able to 
ride out this season this year with so many injuries and so many changes to the lineup day in and day out and having to deal with such young players the team seemed to have that resurgence as the season got closer and closer to the end and I know they didn't end on the greatest of notes but overall what do you think he was able to do as a manager this year I think Girardi did a, a solid job as a manager. I, you mentioned the injuries. You mentioned, I mean, let's talk about the change in production. In, in 2015, Teixeira and A-Rod combined for 64 home runs. This year, they combined for 24. And granted, A-Rod didn't have the last two months of the season. You, you look at other players who, who underachieved. I already mentioned Ellsbury and Gardner. I think McCann had an off year. Uh D.D., solid year. Castro, very strong. Headley, first month of the season, was absent. I think one of Girardi's strengths has always been his use of the bullpen. I did think late in the season there was about a two-week period where I, where I thought he, he, had, he had a bad couple of weeks. Right. I, I've always applauded Joe for his bullpen strategy, and I thought he had a couple of situations where there was I don't have the games right in front of me, but there was one game where Tanaka was cruising through seven innings. I think it was the game that I mentioned earlier with Batances, September 15th, cruising through seven innings. He takes him out against the Red Sox. He was only at 92 or 93 pitches. They lose that game. There was another game where Sessa had about 65 pitches after five innings. He, he pulled him out. And I do believe that the fact that they add players on September 1st, I do think that managers, not just Girardi, I do think that managers, when they have more toys, so to speak, in the bullpen, they feel this obligation to use them. And matchup baseball takes over. And, you know, those guys you bring up on September 1st, most of the time they spent all year at AAA. So they weren't major league ready before September 1st, and now you're using them in situations where you're asking them to get batters out that you didn't think they were good enough to get out before September 1st. So. Anyway, again, I would wrap it up by saying I give Girardi a solid grade. He's got one more year left on his contract next year. He will be back. A lot of people, there's no doubt he will be back. What happens after that? I don't know. I don't know from Girardi's perspective. I don't know from the Yankees' perspective. He's got a son in high school who plays basketball, football, baseball, who I think Joe thinks has a chance to obviously playing college, maybe go beyond that. Does, does he want to be around to see that kid go through the process? Because I think his son is, I should know, the sophomore, junior. He'll, he'll be in that realm where, where obviously schools and recruiters are looking at him. So right. we'll have to see what happens next year. I think that's a big question for Girardi and the Yankees next year. Watch the show. Watch the show. Now to this week's guest in Chris Corelli. He is a Yankees contributor for Sportsnet New York and an MLB contributor for Sporting News, who has obviously been kept busy covering the Bronx Bombers this postseason. Though Game 5 of the ALCS is being played while this show is airing live, the conversation remained relevant enough as Chris and I chatted about the Yankees exceeding this year's expectations, what Joe Girardi has done as a manager, and if he is indeed on his way out after this season, the success of the bullpen and starting pitching to this point. Quick quips on Aaron Judge, Gary Sanchez, the DH spot, and Todd Frazier. Any changes that can be made in the ALCS and what the key will be for the Yankees to make it to the World Series. 
You can follow Chris on Twitter. He's at Chris underscore Corelli. That's C-H-R-I-S underscore C-A-R-E-L-L-I. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Chris Corelli. He's a Yankees contributor for Sportsnet New York and an MLB contributor for Sporting News. Chris, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm doing well, John. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. As we just briefly mentioned before getting on here, we are a lot happier as Yankees fans after their comeback in Game 4. I wanted to start talking about that a little bit big picture even if the Yankees were to lose the next two games or just lose the series outright, based on the expectations coming into the season of this being a rebuilding year, being a couple pieces away, if you told Yankees fans where this team would be in April, I think we would all say that this would definitely exceed expectations and we'd be in a great place. Oh, yeah, uh, no doubt about it. I mean, I, um, I wrote in April... Uh, right before the season started that uh, the Yankees could win maybe 87 games and with a high mark of 92. And I, and that was incredibly optimistic on my part, uh, considering, you know, some of the issues that they uh, were going to have coming into the season. Um, but I'm an optimistic guy. So I, I kind of went with it. And, uh, but now looking where they are right now, it's, it's certainly um, pretty amazing how far they've come. Um you know, all the way across the board, you know, they help from the young guys, help from the veteran, you know, picking each other up along the way. It's been uh, quite a remarkable season. One of the big words that's been getting thrown around with this team is resilience. And we saw that in the ALDS falling behind two games to none to the Cleveland Indians. It seemed like they were down and out, but there's something about this team that doesn't give up. And I think they have a great dynamic of veteran players that can help these younger guys step up to the plate, no pun intended, in these big games and not get overwhelmed. And they were able to come back and win that series and they were able to come back from a 4-0 deficit and win game four against the Houston Astros. Is there something that we can pinpoint about this team that stands out to them specifically as to why they're able to stay in these games, why they have that never-say-die attitude this year? Yeah, I mean, part of it is I think they had some early success in the season in just individual games where they were able to fight back from, you know, two, three, four run deficits, you know, the game in Baltimore where they came back, they were already down by eight, I think it was, um, you know, kind of tells you a little bit about your teammate, right? If, uh, you know, we put together some good at-bats and the pitching staff's able to hold down the fort for the rest of the game, you know, we can be in any in any game, you know, especially games at Yankee Stadium where they just don't, you know, it's hard to keep them down. I mean, they, they're, they're the second highest run scoring team in the league and you know at home it was uh even better so to me it's it's that i also think as far as on a game-to-game uh level you know i think as much as some fans want to knock down joe girardi when they can I, I do think he's been um able to get to the players and, and let them understand that it is you know a game at a time when you're down by two you know he's been through this stuff uh as a player um, and I think that his experience has helped them in some ways as far as, you know, making sure they understand that they've got one game ahead of them. They have to win that game and not worry about what happens the day after and, and kind of go from there. So I think it's a combination of the early success, you know, within each game that they've uh, had some, you know, ability to come back and, and win. And then, uh, you know, once you start once you start coming back from 0-2 against 
probably the best team coming into the playoffs. And, you know, you face the same dilemma. You know, you kind of feel a little bit comfortable about the fact that you've got the, uh, the talent and the wherewithal to do it. So I think that's what we've seen in the last two days, and we'll see um, if they can build on that. You mentioned Joe Girardi, and it's been quite a ride for him this postseason, to say the least. And he always seems to be under some sort of scrutiny, just being the manager of the New York Yankees. We know the tabloids in New York are never kind if you should mess up. And when he did not challenge that call against the Indians, it seemed like his job was up for grabs. Everyone wanted him out of town. The fans booed him when he returned back to Yankee Stadium. But but now looking back at that, it just seems like a small blip on the radar based on what the team has done since then to win that series and what they're doing now. He's going to be a free agent, if you will, as far as managers go once this season's over because his contract will be up. Do you think his job is something that it will be his to sort of push away if he wants to be the manager of the New York Yankees. Do you think that they'll just bring him back? It's something that it would be a job where he would turn it down, not the other way around. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I do believe that uh, after 10 years and the success he's had, and he's, he's you know, for the most part shown he can work with a group of younger kids. And uh, despite the fact that I've had some of my own instances where I felt that he missed the boat completely. Um, I think the job is his if he wants it. Uh, I'm, I'm honestly, even with the success of this postseason, I'm not entirely certain that he does want it anymore. I just, I've gotten the picture a few times throughout the season that he just felt, uh, seems like he was overwhelmed um, as far as just dealing with everything. It's been a long 10 years. Um, he's got, you mentioned it a little bit. He's got a ton of pressure on him. It's a daily pressure that pretty much never goes away. Um, you know, each of his moves is scrutinized, you know, one more than the other, it seems. Um, and it just, uh, it, it, to me, there were some, some of his decisions as the season wore on just kind of pointed to a guy that, you know, wasn't completely there. Um, and maybe just looking past the, uh, past the season ending and seeing, what lies outside of New York and, and maybe just taking some time off. And he's, he's alluded to it himself uh, right before the, you know, at the time of the challenge and even before that, that, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what uh, the rest of the season brings before, you know, he was willing to uh, give an answer as to what he wanted to do, you know, in 2018. But I think in, in the end, you know, I, I'm pretty sure the management there and the ownership there, um, they love uh, Girardi. And if he wants to come back, they'll figure out a way to bring him back. Right. It seems like management is certainly behind him. I think fans sometimes get a hard time to get behind Joe Girardi just because he likes to manage, as people call it, binder baseball, because he will match up opponents based on stats and put in players and pitchers based on how they've done in the past and sometimes not necessarily manage with his heart or with his eyes. And I think that's what fans look at when they say it's hard to get behind this guy because they're they're seeing something from their couch, whereas he's seeing something from his binder and the two tend to clash. But it does seem like management is behind him and you have to give credit for what he's been able to do with a younger squad, as you mentioned, and give management credit for what they were able to do with this team in bringing in some key pieces. This bullpen has been something that 
could almost harken back to the bullpen of old in the late 90s where if the game gets to the sixth inning or the seventh, you have confidence with this team to be able to close out the game. They go back and bring in Araldis Chapman. They go back and bring in David Robertson. And it's gotten to the point now where Joe Girardi seems to be itching to get into this bullpen just because of how successful they've been. Has the surprise of this postseason so far not been the bullpen, though, but the starting pitching, limiting the Houston Astros to just nine runs so far in this ALCS coming in as the best offensive team in baseball, doing a great job in getting the games to the bullpen, and the two losses only giving up two runs in each game is definitely something that I think has carried them to this point. Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, I, it was exactly what I wrote about this morning for us and why. Um, you know, the, the pitching, as as good as it's been that the offense has uh, woken up, you know, the last two days at the stadium, uh, the pitching staff as a whole uh, has been fantastic in this series. You know, um, as you said, the two games that they lost, you know, were two to one defeats. I firmly believe that, you know, bounce goes one way or the other in each in either of those two games, they could have pulled out a win. Um, and, you know, they got a dominant performance uh, in game three. And, you know, yesterday, you know, Sonny Gray was very good considering he hadn't pitched in 12 days and kept them in the game before, you know, it got a little bit away from them. Um, but as a, as a whole, the, the pitching staff has been tremendous. You've got, you look up and down the, the stat lines for the Astros and it's literally Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa providing, you know, they're consistent offense, you know, uh, they've had one pretty large hit, uh, and that was yesterday's uh, double by uh, Gurriel. And, and otherwise, you know, the rest of the team has the same number of hits as uh, Altuve and Correa at nine, you know. So they've, they've held this team to 18 hits in uh, in four games, and, and that's pretty exceptional for a team that averaged five and a half runs a game, you know, through the regular season. It's, uh, it's been great, and it's, and it's something that has to continue in order for them to – um, you know, win today you know, in game five and then potentially six or seven. Uh, they, they really have to stay on that same level as far as the pitching staff is concerned because, you know, other, you know, you have to figure eventually Houston's going to break through in some way or another. And, you know, that hopefully the Yankees can hold them down uh, before that happens. And even going through the games just on paper, the Yankees have to feel good about who they have pitching for them in these remaining three games. Tanaka has been very solid in the postseason, had that big win at home. Severino rebounded from the wild card game quite well. And then you have CC Sabathia in the mix, where if they were to lose game six, there's no one better you'd want on the mound at any point in the game than CC Sabathia, who has put forth incredible performances after a loss the entire season and the postseason included but it's interesting the dynamic and difference between the Astros lineup getting consistently good hitting from their top two hitters compared to the Yankees top two hitters who have been hot and cold we've seen Aaron Judge do incredibly well in game four and seemingly breaking out of a slump the same with Gary Sanchez where they've shown these signs of what they're capable of doing but there has been games during the postseason 
where the hitting hasn't necessarily been there in big spots or just in the game in general. That's also come from the DH spot as well. Is there something that you've seen to this point, whether it's in the batting order or maybe who's in the lineup itself, that you might switch around or any changes that might be able to be made to the offense to switch things up a little bit? Or is it something that after last night, we might as well just keep it where it is? Yeah, I think Girardi was at that point, you know, days ago, really. And I think that's why you haven't seen any major changes other than every once in a while he switches uh, he switches DD up with, uh, with Sanchez. Um, between the three and four hole, but um, you know the, the revolving door at DH has been pretty difficult. You know, I don't think anybody would have thought that they'd get one hit <laughs> collectively or two now, maybe from you know whoever pit, you know is, is out of the DH spot. Um, that's been a very big surprise because I mean, Headley was doing well coming in, Ellsbury was doing well coming in, but I think once they decided to uh, play matchups in that respect, you know, not getting consistent at bats kind of hurt both of them. And then it became too late to try out Matt Holiday, uh, and he, you know, he got his shot for a couple games and, and didn't fare all that well, which was really not surprising. He had a really rough second half, and, and he hadn't been on the field in you know ten to twelve days. So uh, the DH aside, I think what's the, the lineup is pretty much going to stay as it is. I think he's uh, Dre's comfortable with it. Um, he's got Headley in there again for Game Five, uh, and you know I, I just think he's. Uh, He's at ease with uh, with the guys he's got in there. Uh, what it comes down to is, you know, are they they being Judge and Sanchez? Who you were referring to specifically, if are they going to make adjustments from, you know, what they saw from Keuchel and Verlander in games uh, one and two, uh, in games five and six? And it's essential that they do because um, the more they make both of those pitchers work, uh, the earlier they can get to that uh, Houston bullpen, which is, you know, been a uh, very huge weakness for them uh, in the postseason. You, even before they met up with the Yankees, they had a rough time against the Red Sox as well. Uh, so I think the, the the key for the next couple of games is, um, you know, not so much to make sure they're not swinging at bad pitches. These guys make tremendous pitches. You know, it's it's easier for fans to say, well, why are they swinging at this? But I think the, the bigger key is to just force the issue, slap some balls you know, foul and, and just uh, try to stay in the bats as long as possible so that, you know, it might be a 2-1 game in the sixth, but they are up to 115 pitches already and, and get them out of there and then really just concentrate on scoring some runs off that bullpen and, you know, the seventh, eighth, and ninth. Uh, to me, that's the that's the key to the next two games. Yeah, we've seen already just how important it can be to put the ball in play and just getting the bat on the ball can make anything happen. We actually saw it go against the Yankees where Starlin Castro has two errors, one on a Brian McCann can of corn type ground ball that ate him up deep into the outfield. But it just gets to the point where you might be watching the game, and, and we saw this happen in Houston where there's 14 and 15 strikeouts going against the team, and you're just praying that they make contact. Girardi has been pretty adamant and confident in the lineup, which as a player they have to be excited to see. The only gripe that I've had, if there would be any, is that I don't necessarily enjoy Aaron Judge batting second, and it usually rears its ugly head in the first 
inning. It's worked out for them in game three and in game four especially because he seems to do a little bit better when there's runners on base, when pitchers have to be a little bit more careful just based on their surroundings. But in the first inning, if Brett Gardner gets out, in a way you're either expecting a home run or that a rally isn't going to get started. And if Brett Gardner gets on, you're obviously not going to have Aaron Judge bunt or try to do something to advance him to second. You're expecting him to hit. I don't know where the answer is to that. If they move up Castro, as we know, he's not someone that takes a lot of pitches and is going to work a count. He's looking for a spot and he'll swing wherever the ball may be. It just becomes a little bit frustrating in the first inning and has been a consistent thing where whether it's Sanchez batting in third or Didi coming up with no one on, it comes to the point where you're looking around like, well, we're going to have to wait for them to come around in the fourth or whatever inning that may be for there to be guys on base. I just don't know if that's something that necessarily needs to be changed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, that's really been an ongoing issue the whole season is, you know, who hits in the two spot. You know, there was a, they've used a multitude of players there. Uh, and at this point, I think what because there's no – uh, I don't think there's a player on the team who's a you can look at and say, okay, this guy belongs in the two hole. Um, getting judge as many at bats as possible is probably where Girardi's thinking is at this point. You know, it's let's just make sure he gets five full plate appearances through a game, and something's going to happen, whether it's the first inning or the third or fifth or whatever time he comes back up. You know, I, I guess I completely agree with what you're saying. He's not the prototypical person to be putting, you know, batting second. Um, but there's also at this point. I don't think there's anybody that you would feel comfortable moving into that spot and saying that he is going to produce any more. Um, and I think that's kind of where Jordy is at this point. Is, you know, let's just get him as many plate appearances as possible and having him hit second is how that's going to happen. Um, it's not going to change for, for this uh, <laughs> for this postseason as long as they go, probably. Uh, but it, it'll something that they work through for for next year too because he's he's clearly a middle of the lineup bat and you know they they need somebody who is going to move Gardner over uh when need be you know for next season Yankees fans have just been shaking their head when it comes to rallies for this team because they seem to be starting in the lower end of the lineup which would be where you wouldn't expect it to if you just looked at the roster one of the big components of that seems to be Todd Frazier. He always seems to be around when these rallies happen or the first to jump over the dugout fence and run out and wave the next runner home as we saw in game four. He's someone that loves playing on this team. The players love having him. He's close to home, as gets mentioned every broadcast, it seems. But is this a player that you would hope to see stick around after this season? I know it's up in the air based on the salary cap and them wanting to get below it. But what he's brought to this team this year, it seems like he would be someone they would love to have stick around if possible. Yeah, and he's making a good case to to do so. I mean, he's um, he's done everything you'd expect uh, from at third base itself. Um, I I think that his power shows there. He he's the consummate teammate. He's the veteran presence that they'll definitely want. Um, and if they are able to get one of their, you know, system prizes up, uh, like a Glaber Torres or Miguel Andujar next year, at some point, middle to end of last next year, and they can slide, you know, Frazier over to the DH, you know, it somewhat makes sense. I I guess my, my question would be is how long of a contract is he looking to get? He's not an exceptionally old player. You know, he's a you know middle middle aged as far as uh, baseball is concerned. It was mid you know early thirties, 
Um, so I, I know him going on a one-year deal, he may not be so interested in something like that. So it's going to take a couple of years, and you have to figure out what he's going to do for you if he's going to be signed for you know a two-year contract. Um, and then it also leads to questions about you know okay now you've got him and you've got Chase Headley. Do you have to tra- you know do you have to trade Headley? Do you trade Castro and Torres plays second? There's so many um, so many facets to whether they try to sign Frazier next year and beyond besides just the player himself. Um, but he fits, you know, and I guess that's, it's going to be a, a, a certain consideration for them, you know, once the season ends. And uh, it, like you said, it, he, he definitely likes playing in New York. Uh, he, he's fit right in with the group and, uh, you know, he's going to provide some value if, if they do maintain him. It's just, uh, there's going to be a, a certain trickle down effect uh, if they were to sign him. Always decisions that need to be made in the off season. And what's funny for this year's team is the two oldest players, one in the pitching staff and one in the lineup, are probably the two most coveted that they left to bring back in Todd Frazier and CeCe Sabathia based on what they've been able to do this season and in the postseason as well. We've heard this in the past couple of days with the Yankees being back home, and we've heard it in general for the postseason, that the stadium atmosphere itself harkens back to the days of the late 90s and the early 2000s when this team was winning consistently and winning World Series champions championships even different from the 2009 season when they went on to win the World Series in the first season there. It seems like fans are back on board with a younger New York Yankees team. That's why the comparison is so close to those 90s teams, because they were so young with the core four just getting started in the majors. We're seeing that now with this year's team, and everyone says how loud the stadium has been. How exciting has this been just to watch this team, to hear this atmosphere on TV, to see everyone coming on board with the Yankees once again not to say that they left but it seems like everyone's back at least once the game when it starts at five gets to maybe about 6 30 once everybody gets out of work and hits the train there's a lot of empty seats when the game starts but in general how exciting is it to see this support for the New York Yankees again oh yeah I mean and, and you, you you hit the nail on the head as far as why I mean they've got a young exciting team where uh you know the future is uh is very bright and it's 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 going to be extended you know the the good news about the fact is they have they still have a deep farm system beyond the players that are already up and contributing um they've got you know upper echelon talent in the farm you know that are going to make a significant impact in the next year or two and then you know getting be below the luxury tax and getting involved in the free agent market with some younger players and a new a uh, new conception as far as how they handle signing free agents and making trades. Uh, they they've constructed a an organization. You know, not just a not just a 25 man roster or a 40 man roster. They constructed an organization that is uh, exceptionally deep, and it's going to you know keep paying dividends year over year for for quite some time. You know, the the judges and the Sanchez and Bird are 24, 25 years old, and uh, Severino's 23. Even the you know quote older pitchers on the staff you know if Tanaka stays he's 29 next year Grayson is late 20s so you know it's not a it's not an old team anymore and I think that fans have uh, really embraced that fact you know and and at the same time the the balance that you've talked about uh, we discussed uh, with Sabathia and Frazier Headley 
uh, Brett Gardner, you know, the veterans that have been, you know, in the game for, you know, a long time, um, they're like the perfect complement to them. And uh, it's, it's easy to get behind a team that you can see having fun on the field too. Right. I mean, I think that's, that's the, uh, the other piece that's been missing the last few years is they've, they've fielded decent teams. They fielded teams that were competitive all along, but you know, there was just this, um, that dynamic of the team having fun and enjoying each other's company and, and uh, really being behind each other and having their backs is, was uh, not always evident. And now it's, it's right out there. It's right in front of your face. And, uh, you know, they've, uh, they've embraced each other and they've embraced the, the future themselves. So it's, it's definitely the reason why, you know, you see 48,000 fans, you know, jumping up and down again and making, you know, Yankee Stadium three shake. To put a bow on this, it's interesting that at the start of the season, many predicted that the Astros and the Dodgers would end up in the World Series. It seemed inevitable when Houston went up 2-0 and the Dodgers got off to their hard start and they continued to do well in the NLCS. But now these Yankees have put a thorn into the sides of those predictions by tying up the series. This show comes out the night of game five so we can I guess just assume that they were to unfortunately lose and the series is 3-2 going back to Houston with the Yankees having to win two games regardless they were going to have to beat Keuchel or Vorlander once and they would have the chance to presumably do both or at least do one we saw how they were able to play in Houston. They didn't seem like it was too much for them to handle. They did well on the defensive end to limit them to two runs in both games. If the offense comes alive for two more runs, they win those both contests. So it's not like they've been out of the game. What do you think the biggest key will be for the Yankees to win this ALCS in advance to the World Series? I mentioned it earlier. I think it's simply, I shouldn't say simply, it's, it's keeping it's keeping the Astros offense in the same position that they've been in since game one. Uh, if they can contain a majority of their hitters as they have, um, I, I feel like the Yankees are better suited to scratch out runs at the end of games. Um, it's, it's about, one, getting strong starting pitching that matches Keuchel and Verlander, and if they get to game seven, whoever's on the mound for them for the seventh game, um, and then really just scratching that run across when they need it, getting the big hit. And they can do that a heck of a lot easier than the Astros can if it's the seventh inning and it's a bullpen game. And so long as they keep it close in the, you know, from the first through the sixth, uh, they have a chance to come back, and they certainly have a chance to build leads and, and hold the Astros down uh, late in games if, if, they're, if they're fortunate enough to, uh, to get ahead of Keiko or Verlander. So it's, uh, it's, it's really pitching first to me, and then, you know, getting that timely hit uh, late in the game when uh, they need it. One final quick one to get you out of here. You've been a fan of this team. You get to cover this team. Is there one moment or one game that stands out to you, either as someone covering the team or as a fan in the last several decades you've been following the Yankees? <laughs> uh, if we're going to include my entire uh, watching uh, the Yankees history, I, I always, when people ask me that, I, I always go back to my, my first instance there, which was in the late 70s. You know, Reggie Jackson was uh, still manning right field, um, and it was uh, sitting in the in the bleachers area and watching him, you know, wave to fans and uh, just kind of be a, a bigger than life uh, image in the outfield. And uh, you know, watching him on television and finally seeing him in person. You know, I was uh, I lived in, I lived in the upstate New York, so didn't get to 
you know, to come see games as often as I would be able to now. Uh, so uh, being a seven-year-old kid, you know, out there seeing Reggie and, and just watching your first game is, is like always the instance for me that I go back to as far as, I guess, cementing my uh, my fandom in, in, in baseball and in the Yankees themselves, you know. And uh, that's, you know, that's that's the point that I always look to. You know, I have, from that point on, I haven't, uh, haven't stopped, uh, you know, loving this team and now that I get to uh, to watch them for an actual uh, paying reason, it makes it all the more better. And now there's another star in right field waving to children as well, keeping that yep. tradition going. So you, you can't ask for anything better. Chris, thanks so much for your time. It was great to catch up on what the Yankees have been up to so far and recap what's been going on and hopefully look ahead to what will be to come after this ALCS ends. It would be nice to continue to have to cover this team well into October. We'll keep our fingers crossed that things will go well, but it was great getting to chat about it with you hopefully we can do it again sometime but i really enjoyed it all right sounds good thanks a lot john i appreciate you uh, having me on thanks again to chris for jumping on the show we'll now jump into another segment of the toll booth with donnie right side Donnie is a professional handicapper who knows a thing or two about the lines of the sports world and will be joining the bridge for a weekly segment to help us get on the right side of those lines He'll offer up some of his best bets to correspond with the bridge fade of the week, where listeners are urged to completely go in the opposite direction of what the show decides to pick. And if you did so last week, you were correct. Since the New England Patriots were unable to cover their very large spread last week against the New York Jets in New Jersey. We actually went 3-0 and last week with Donnie successful on a college football pick, an NFL pick, and fading the bridge pick of the week, which was the New England Patriots to cover. They did not. Hopefully, we are successful once more. And for the upcoming weekend, with the line set as of this recording, the bridge fade of the week is... The Atlanta Falcons, fresh off blowing a game to slinging Jay Cutler in the Miami Dolphins, getting three and a half points in Foxborough against those same defending Super Bowl champion New England Patriots. Now to someone who actually knows what he's doing. You can find Donnie at DonnieRightside.com and at SportsbookReview.com and also follow him on Twitter. He's at RightSideVP. And remember, this segment is for entertainment purposes only. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Is anybody got a dime? Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. Hey, everybody. Donnie Wrightside here from DonnieWrightside.com and SportsBookReview.com coming to you here on yet another episode of The Toll Booth here on The Bridge. Going to take a look, and hopefully we can go again. Let's say it. 2-0 and this week again. Last week we pulled off the double deuces there. Got it right back in the wheelhouse. Fresh off a week where we went 0-2. 
No better way to come back than go 2-0. Let's keep the good momentum and the good juices going here. I got two football games, folks, we're going to want to take a look at. One is Saturday night, and one is a Monday night football affair. 365-366, Kansas and TCU. That is Saturday night football, 8 p.m. Eastern time. The line's sitting here at CG Technologies, minus 39. Bet online also sitting at a minus 39. The total in the game currently sitting at 59 as well at sportsbook.com. Let's take a look and not so much go over the actual number the minus 39 as a side I want to look more at the total here of the 59 I think they can reach that in this one if we're just looking at Kansas here going up against two MAC teams early in the season gave up 45 points to Central Michigan folks 42 to Ohio stepping back in conference play West Virginia hangs 56 on them Texas Tech 65 and Iowa State not exactly the bastion of offensive you know names out there 45 points they hung on Kansas as well TCU can easily reach that amount. The reason why I like this football game is Kansas does like to go fast. What does that mean? TCU is going to have a lot more opportunities here to score the football. I think TCU gets close to the half century mark. Yes, folks, 50 points here. The only thing I'm asking out of Kansas, can a brother get at least two touchdowns out of that football team this weekend? If Kansas scores 14 or more points in this, I think we're going to cruise home the victory. So play number one here on the toll booth. On again, 365, 366 on the rotation is going to be TCU Kansas over the posted total of 59 points. Let's move it over. Not on Sunday, folks. We're going to skip over. Have a nice relaxing day. We're going to take this one right to the wire on Monday Night Football, 477, 478 on the rotation, 8.30 p.m. Eastern time kickoff. The Washington Redskins and the Philadelphia Eagles. Kirk Cousins and Wentz going to square it up in an NFC East showdown. Currently looking at the over-under in this one, folks, at 48.5 across the board. If we're looking at a side, it's minus 4.5 at Pinnacle, minus 4.5 at CG Technologies, and also mirroring that number at BetOnline at 4.5. Folks, we're not going to look for a total in this one. We're actually going to go to a side. Let's take a look at the Philadelphia Eagles in this aspect. I think they're the much better overall football team, a little bit more rested as well because they played a Thursday night football game as opposed to the Redskins playing versus the San Francisco 49ers last Sunday. If we take a look early in the season, you saw the first game of the year, 30-17 to winner by your Philadelphia Eagles, as I should say my Philadelphia Eagles. Then the uh, following week, Washington did go out and have a nice victory over the Rams, 27-20, to beat Oakland 27-10 to on Sunday night football. Very impressive. Went out, no shame in their game, losing to Kansas City. 29-20 and hung around there and held on to beat the San Francisco 49ers 26-24. Philadelphia Eagles fresh off of four straight victories here beating the Giants, Chargers, Arizona and also the Carolina Panthers here. I think they're in a really good spot here matching up on Monday Night Football. Some injuries for Washington you want to keep an eye on. Josh Norman could be out for this football game as it stands right now. Also, Bashard Breland, another talented cornerback. Also, Jonathan Allen, the talented kid, first-round draft pick from out of Alabama, pushing the pocket, one of the defensive tackles, a rising defensive tackle in the NFL. Looks like he's going to miss a few months. So Washington going to be a little bit less than healthy, to say the least, heading into Philadelphia on a Monday Night Tilt. Not asking the Philadelphia Eagles to blow them out of the ballpark, folks. Just give me the seven-point winner. So we're going to lean on the Philadelphia Eagles on Monday night football rotation 478 and also in rotation 365-366. Let's lean on TCU and Kansas going over the posted total of 59. The name of the game here, folks, is to win. Let's get another 2-0 week here on the toll booth. Thanks for tuning into The Bridge. I'm Donnie Wrightside from DonnieWrightside.com and SportsbookReview.com. Good luck, fellas. Left side! Strong side! 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 Left 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 side! Left
We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which once was found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Since Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins to this segment. And don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better breakdown of what will be in store if you do so. Along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down Blade Runner 2049, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as 30 years after the events of the first film, when a new Blade Runner LAPD Officer K, played by Ryan Gosling, unearths a long-buried secret that has the potential to plunge what's left of society into chaos. Kay's discovery leads him on a quest to find Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, a former LAPD Blade Runner who has been missing for 30 years. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. The original Blade Runner is something that means a lot to people. Well, when I say original, I guess I have to be a little more specific. Is it the theatrical cut? The director's cut? The final cut? The cut of the cut of the cut? Although there are so many cuts, and the theatrical version did not make a lot at the box office, Blade Runner developed a cult following strong enough to push a sequel into motion 35 years later. I'm 27, so I wasn't even alive when the first movie came out, and I only saw the movie because of what the sequel, Blade Runner 2049, had going for it. I've loved Ryan Gosling ever since he played the defensive liability Alan in Remember the Titans. He was cast in the leading role. The great Harrison Ford was returning to the project after a stellar performance reprising another role of the past, Han Solo, in Star Wars The Force Awakens. Denis Villeneuve, coming off the best movie of 2016, Arrival, and other great films such as Sicario and Prisoners, was also attached to direct the sequel. When asked why he took on the project, he said, I didn't want someone else to this up. And oh yeah, cinematography by the great Roger Deakins. So this was in place to be one of the best movies of the year, but I had to see the original first. I watched the final cut a few weeks ago, and I thought it was an excellent film, way ahead of its time when it came out in 1982. It's weird to talk about it now because it influenced so many movies of today, so the themes presented are familiar. But you can't take away from it, because it was obviously released before those films. So clearly I'm not the person to talk about the merits of the first film. What I can talk about is 2049. Let's go to the tape. With a 2 hour 43 minute runtime, Blade Runner 2049 runs the risk of being a slow film to some. But it is not slow, it's deliberate. Like the first film, the pace builds tension and gives you an opportunity to see the world with Deacon's beautiful cinematography, perhaps good enough to finally get him that elusive Oscar. 
Gosling helps this process by walking slowly, like he always has to look over his shoulder, ready for the next attack. Because one, he is a cop, and two, he is a replicant that humans don't want anything to do with. Similar to an X-Men movie and the struggle between mutants and humans. Gosling is once again great. What gets overlooked in his performances are his facial expressions. He can tell you everything you need to know without speaking. Just look at his face. Watch Drive. Watch La La Land. He's up there with the best actors working today. Not just a pretty boy. In the film, Gosling has a relationship with the hologram Joy, played by Anna de Armas. She does a phenomenal job, as the relationship between the two is very real. Dave Bautista continues to stay in his lane and perfect what he can accomplish as an actor. A small role here, but effective. Harrison Ford delivers a Force Awakens-like performance, which is exactly what we're looking for from one of the best movie stars of all time. Also not surprising, Robin Wright is excellent. So the acting is very good. Even Jared Leto, who is coming off a horrible iteration of the Joker. As I said, the visuals are great. The world building is excellent, and the score adds to the claustrophobia and a lack of peace in 2049. It's loud and uncomfortable. That's its purpose. It's difficult to talk about the deeper implications of the film in a review without spoiling the movie or devoting the time necessary to the topic. What I will say is I enjoyed the simple plot of the film. Gosling's character Kay, yes, like Men in Black, is looking for a place in the world, a purpose, and the movie explores this very well. It also definitely calls back to the original film. I don't think you have to see the first one to see this one, but it definitely adds a lot if you have. Although I really enjoyed the film, Blade Runner 2049 doesn't reach the heights of the other Denis Villeneuve films. It's not as good as Arrival, it's not as good as Prisoners, it's not as good as Sicario. But that is admittedly a murderous row of movies. I find his other movies transformative. You leave the theater emotionally in a different place. I still think about Arrival, and I still love watching it. When I saw Blade Runner 2049, I left thinking it was a very good movie, but I wasn't strongly moved. So I guess that's a negative, but it's only a negative because of how good his movies have been. The bottom line, Blade Runner 2049 is a better movie than the original. The visuals are great, the acting is solid, and the story works for a follow-up to Blade Runner. But it doesn't do enough to reach the level of past Villeneuve films and I think that's going to disappoint fans of the original. Although it's an excellent movie, Blade Runner 2049 isn't the experience people are looking for. I'll compare Blade Runner 2049 to the former quarterback controversy on the Washington Redskins. For a time, Robert Griffin III and Kirk Cousins were both solid quarterbacks, both thought to be possible franchise quarterbacks. The Redskins quickly realized they didn't need both of them. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Thursday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. 
You can also find episodes of The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on the TuneIn app, while also searching for Sports Radio America on Wednesday nights at 7 Eastern Time to listen to the show live. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive back into Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.